person con- contraplants. Is that better? No, who is that? Oh, French? man. Quick, you quick, guys quick, haven't quick. seen this? No, Hang on. She used to be a grad student or something. And she does these really excellent discussions of like the concept of the West, concept of like alt right. Con- like she does these things, like, but she's very open minded. That's the most amazing thing. She's extremely open minded. She did this one on, on Jordan Peterson, which yeah. I thought was fascinating because she goes into like, she's not, you would imagine she's like, oh, I hate Jordan Peterson. She really does. She acknowledges like yeah. good things he does and she crit- critiques other aspects. She does a really, the reason I, I showed my students her thing on the West, the concept of the West. Yeah. It's actually really high quality analysis. Really? I, I'll show you. It's her called Contra Points. It's a very, I That's don't know her how name? You, she's French? No, she's, <laughs> God knows where she's Or is that from. her stage name? It looks ridiculous, but like her, 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 her analysis costumes. is excellent. Welcome to the Safina Society podcast. Uh, today we're joined by a few people. We have a uh, different side at the controls. Apparently all our audio Control guys are Saad. named Sad. <laughs> um, we have, of course, Dr. Shadi, um, Nazmul, who's been here before. We also have a first-time guest, uh, Ahmed Naim, a North Jersey OG. Mm-hmm. And uh, we also have a very special guest, Dr. Jonathan Brown. Uh, Dr. Brown is uh, the chair of the Al-Walid bin Talal, chair of Islamic Civilization at Georgetown University. He's also the director of the uh, Center for Muslim Christian Understanding at Georgetown and a professor at Georgetown. You previously were a professor in Seattle, University of Washington. University of Washington, yeah. And uh, Dr. Brown's uh, background is uh, mainly in, or his, his, uh, his graduate work was Hadith, Hadith criticism, authenticity, and historicity of the Hadith corpus. Um, he's written a number of books, um, including Misquoting Muhammad, The Challenges and Choices of Interpreting the Prophetic Legacy, uh, Muhammad, A Very Short Introduction, and uh, Hadith, Muhammad's Legacy in, medieval in, in, in the Medieval and Modern World, as well as his thesis was published as a book as well. Was it? No, not yet. Yeah. The, the canonization of Abu Yeah, that was, that was But not for purchase. It's brill. So it is for purchase. Three hundred forty-six dollars. If you have, have one hundred eighty-one dollars, <laughs> I think the like paperback paperback is only sixty dollars. So welcome to New Jersey, book. Dr. Brown. Yeah. Hmm? I said welcome to New Jersey and welcome My to pleasure. the podcast. I'm happy to be here. And we and we missed the last book. Well, maybe it's not in the bio yet. Oh, the Slavery, Slavery and Islam book. What is it yeah. called? Just Slavery and Islam? Slavery and Islam. Yeah, it originally it had a, a sort of a subtitle, but then I realized, because it wasn't really about everything about slavery and Islam, but then I realized that by the end of the book, it was pretty comprehensive. So I said, yeah. you know, why not just say Slavery and Islam? So your first point and your main point, I th- my takeaway is that pretty much one of the biggest points in your whole career is this idea that the way a regular smart person throughout the world and throughout history would analyze history and deduce something to be a historical fact that we can reliably transmit, uh, the Western critical method, right, the Western historical critical method has some assumptions in addition to what any regular intelligent person would do. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, I mean, I would I would go further, and I would just say that there is no, there is no person, regular intelligent person in history, transhistorically. There is not. There's no such thing as one way that a intelligent human being would think throughout history. What people, assess history, though? Yeah, people are products of their environment. But you don't think that there are certain criterion that come together that give people a sense that. Yes, this thing, this transmission of a fact is true, so we should pass it on as history, right? Or this record, right, 
uh, has certain qualities, right? Such as that it comes from four different people or something like that, that we can accept this document as reflecting history, not fact, not fiction. I mean, I think that the probably the more uh, witnesses you have to something directly, the more likely any human community is to believe it. But I, I think that uh, human societies are so idiosyncratic in some things. That it's they... funny because I was just having this talk with uh, uh, Salman Yunus online and uh, Waqar because what I said was that I do believe that there are certain things that from the dawn of time until the end of time, the way our intellects are put together, there are certain forms of logic, there are certain conditions of accepting facts and rejecting facts that are going to be universal. Right. I, that if I threw you a mm. 3000 years ago into India, there is going to be in the way your brain works and the way regular intelligent person in that society works. There's going to be overlap. But you're talking about now you're talking about the way your brains work and logic. That's very different from history. I mean, if you said, for example, principle of non-contradiction. Yeah. If you said uh, sort of just basic reliance on sense perception, immediate sense perception. You don't you, think that history also uh, is involved in that? Because uh, if I went to India. 3,000 years ago, and I went to a man, and I said, uh, the hut's going to burn down. And he says, who said? Right? Or the hut's burning down. He's, he's, he goes to me, who said? And I said, well, um, a, th- a four-year-old said it. He's going to keep doing what he's doing. But if I tell him, no, 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 uh, your uncle or your aunt or your brother, an adult, told me the hut's burning down. He's going to take it seriously. I don't, yeah, but I think that could be, you go to another society where people think of children as innocent and uncorruptible and, and that children will always tell the truth because they haven't been corrupted by all the foibles of society. And so when they say, you know, this is, I think you can even see in um, of some movies and TV shows today, the idea that, you know, when a child comes up and tells you something that they, there's some kind of truthfulness in that. They're not, there's no artifice. Yeah. So I think but that, you get the idea that that no, yeah, but I, I get that ch- I'm challenging the idea. I mean, I think that okay. I think so, that you you your assumption about you just yeah. said this guy wouldn't listen to the four year old. I'm saying I think that there are societies have been in our societies where they yeah. would take the four year old's opinion. So seriously. is there uh, what are the absolutes? Okay, that we could say exists over the past, you know, maybe thousand or two thousand years in the transmission of history that you would say. That we can take as the default, hmm. right? And then here are the assumptions that you're claiming or you're stating, your assertion is, that exists in the Western historical method. So, I mean, I would say that, I, I mean, this is not seem like an academic distinction, but I think it's important to distinguish between statements you make about uh, epistemo- sort of epistemological assertions. Yeah. So to say that uh, certainty can come from X or from Y. Mm-hmm. And then there's there's also the fact that, uh, for example, I mean d- the rule of law of gravity. Mm-hmm. Does a law of gravity exist epistemologically out there in the world, ontologically out there in the world, or is it just a really good way of observe of describing things that generally happen? But it might not be true. Like right now, the, what we've all just seen as the rule of gravity might just stop working because mm-hmm. it's just that's stopped working, and then our description, our heuristic or description, would no longer be valid. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that there's a the difference between how we look at the, the way knowledge comes to us. So I would say that just in terms of how human beings, and I, by the way, I think this is mostly how Muslim scholars epistemologically looked at this issue, is they were not so much interested in theoretical uh, assertions as they were, and certainly in things like testimony from the past, as, as they were in 
descriptions of how uh, people generally function. So they would the notion of tawatur of you know sometimes called massive parallel transmission or massively transmitted reports. Uh, the usulis would say that things like the existence of China. So who's been to China? Anybody? Yeah. Oh yeah, the businessman's been to China. <laughs> <laughs> okay, who's been to Antarctica? In Antarctica. No, I'm kidding. Oh, okay, a few. So, I mean, we, we actually don't know if Antarctica exists or not. Mm-hmm. We have no... This is the classic example in the Sewell yeah. books is like uh, Wujud Sleen, right? Yeah. Uh, Wujud Sleen. So, um, like, we could just say Antarctica, the existence of that, the existence of George Washington, there was a guy named George Washington. None of us met him. None of us ever saw him. We've seen pictures. and There's no videotape of him. So, like, that kind of thing would be certain in the past yeah. because it's simply, it's just inconceivable to us that someone could make this, that make up that massive of forgery and no intelligent generation will come along and expose it yeah i mean it would years. be but you know then it there's did you see this movie interstellar yeah yeah it's one of my favorites actually you liked it a lot yeah i loved it okay well i mean it's an okay movie i mean look I'm, I'm happy you liked it, <laughs> I'm happy you liked it. <laughs> okay it was great. uh so remember the scene when i thought this was really interesting when he goes into the school and he's they said, you know, they like the moon, like we all know the moon landing was. Oh, strange, that was right? hilarious. Because that, that, that scene was great. That's a really good scene for Muslims, yeah. I think, because you're, you know. That he, describes our. Yeah, I mean, that, that's basically, regularly. that just shows like, look, you know what? Things that are, what's common sense and certain and everybody knows this, that yeah. stuff actually isn't the same everywhere and all in all times. Yeah. It can change even in one society. Uh, so, and then you look at the way people talk about gender issues or about sexual sexuality, about social mores, things that everybody knows are true now is not, wasn't even true 20 years ago. Yeah. So I think like this is a, a good way to, um, I, I think it's very important because it shows, it, it helps Muslims and I think it helps everybody in society break out from this feeling that uh, the way that we determine truth has to be the way that everybody determined it in the past. Okay. So then what is, did you have something to say, Elias? What are uh, the Western assumptions that you referenced? So the the first of all, I want to say that the the discussion that uh, Dr. Shadi is, is talking about is the chapter nine of my book. Mm-hmm. I think it's chapter nine, a uh, book on Hadith, mm-hmm. the new edition, uh, Hadith Muhammad's legacy in the medieval modern world, from one world. And uh, the uh, so there's a section on the Western study of Hadith. In the beginning, it starts out with a just you know maybe ten or fifteen page description of the origins and development of Western historical critical methods. So how how do Western scholars, um, why do they look at history the way they do? Why do they look at religion the way they do? The way that why do they think about the origins of religion history the, the way they do? Um, when they read a, when when an American reads a book of a description of the past. Uh, why is it that they sort of guffaw at some stuff and believe other things? And uh, yeah, so I mean, I, I think that uh, you want me to like describe. Yeah, give us a things? summary. Give the listeners. Okay, I'll summary. give the l- listeners yeah. a summary. Uh, good thing I read it yesterday in the train. I mean, as <laughs> <laughs> I'd be up a creep. People, people don't read anymore, so this will be beneficial <laughs> to them. So uh, I mean, the the so basically the the main sources. So first of all, it's, it's important to know that people. Uh, don't drop out of the womb thinking like a 20th century American or 20th century British person about the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is uh, the way we think of, and I say we here, we Western people, right? The way we think about the past is product of very specific cultural tradition, very specific religious tradition, very specific technological tradition. Um, and uh, so the, the basically the 
what we call historical critical method, which would be the way that Western scholars kind of evaluate what is true and false about the past, or it reports about the past, uh, comes from a couple major sources. It's shaped by the Renaissance rediscovery of uh, Greco-Roman legacy. Mm -hmm. It's shaped by uh, the Protestant Reformation. Mm -hmm. It's shaped by the age of discovery, especially the discovery of the Americas. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's pretty much it, right? So uh, these these forces uh, are what create our view of the world. Mm. Um, and the way so each of these each of these different forces has its own effect. So just for example, the uh, let's start with something like the age of discovery. So until 1492, uh, the, the the map of the globe was based on kind of Ptolemy and Strabo, kind of Greco-Roman uh, 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 imagination of how the continents looked. And of course, there's no Americas. There's just the you see a, a flat picture, but they didn't think the world was flat. They just thought there was nothing on the other side of the globe, which is ocean. Mm. So, and then that gets affirmed by the the, the church, the Christian the, the, the Christian Church, and um, then the kind of history of humanity is based on the, the kind of biblical genealogy, the, the story of Genesis and things like that, and uh, a kind of a overall conception of history that is kind of uh, formalized by people like St. Augustine. You know, uh, there's the Adam and Eve, and then humans fall, and then uh, uh, there's prophets and things like that. And then uh, the peak of history is the moment in which the divine has this contact with the earth in the person of Jesus, and then everything goes downhill from there until the end of time when it gets really bad, and then it'll get really good, and then, it, you know, whatever happens, the end of the world yeah. happens. I mean, that should sound familiar because this is actually the kind of Muslim view. It's an Abrahamic view of history, except for Muslims, it's the, the moment of the Quran is the mm -hmm. peak. Um, so the, just think about when you, when you discover the Americas, they don't fit into this. Yeah. Like, oh, where are this? Where's this in the Bible? It's not in the Bible. Yeah. Or where's this in the church's official geography? It's not in the official geography. Where are the people of the Bible, uh, the people of the Americas? Who, who are they descended from? Yeah. And uh, so this one guy in the late 1600s, a scholar named Isaac de la Perere, he's a French scholar. He has this, he wrote a book called The, the Pre-Adamites. Mm -hmm. And he says that, um, so it's actually interesting in the book of Genesis. So when Cain murders Abel, it's interesting. He just he, he runs away and he marries from another tribe, mm -hmm. which if you think about it, doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, wait, wait a second. I thought like Adam and Eve and then there's Cain and Abel. It turns out there's like some other. So actually, um, based on that and then just this notion that there's these other parts of the world that no one had known about before, Isaac de la Perere says the Bible is a local story. It's not a global story. So this is not the story of humanity. This is actually the story of just one tribe. And, and there's other things out there that aren't described. Um, well, previously to that, how did they explain China? There's no reference to China or India in the Bible. Um, Why wouldn't they just apply that? No, but these were, but these are, yo, I know they no, actually they're they would they have a descent from Noah, so Noah's different sons, Yaphet so they and say that Ham, Ham and all oh, these I other see. people. So okay. there's so there's, there's different sons go well, and settle these yeah. areas, right? Okay. So um, the. That, that's just a that's just sort of the age of discovery. Yeah. And then you, you let so lo, let's look at like Protestant Reformation. So Protestant Reformation breaks the interpretive control of the Bible. Yeah. So the, the, the idea that who can study the Bible, 
um, what kind of claims we made about the Bible. It's not just being made by the church anymore. Mm. It's being made by all these different Protestant groups. And some of these Protestant groups are pretty extreme in their views. And so you look, uh, um, you know, I sort of, sort of back up a little bit for the f- to the first cause, which I should have gone to first, which is the rediscovery of the Greco-Roman tradition mm-hmm. the, from the 1300s, 1400s, 1500s, which they get from Muslims, they get from Byzantine Empire, uh, the books of Aristotle, books of Plato, the uh, history of Livy, the letters of Cicero. Basically, uh, it, if you looked at, let's say, Renaissance prince, or not a medieval European prince in 1200, or a scholar or a medieval monk in 1200, right? They just saw themselves a direct continuation of the Roman tradition, um, you know, like a Frankish version of it. But they were the same church. They were they were a direct continuation of the past. They didn't see a rupture between themselves and the past and the Roman past. Yeah. So if you go to you know these um, uh, like a chapel of a, of, a, of a church or something, you would have a painting of biblical figures in the clothing of a 12th century German peasant. Mm. Or you'd see the, uh, you know, the, the prince in the, the clothing of a, of a Roman senator, Roman knight or something like that, right? So there's just, a, there's no notion of historical distance. Now, what happens when they discover these writings of Cicero and things like that is they, as they realize how Cicero is a you know Roman senator and read a man about town, man of letters, dies in uh, 43 BC, executed in 43 BC. So he, uh, they realized how much the Latin had changed. It's really about the study change in language. They realized that the language, the Latin they're speaking, mm. and the church Latin of the 1300s is just this totally corrupt, decadent mm. version. It's not this like clean, pure Latin of Cicero. And then they start realizing that. Some documents, there's this document called the Donation of Constantine, which is supposedly made by the Emperor Constantine. He died, what was it, uh, 338 or something like that? I can't remember exactly. Um, mm-hmm. And he, before he dies, allegedly he writes this donation where he basically gives control of many of the lands of the, of the Latin West to the church. And this is one of the many justifications that the papacy uses for temporal control. Mm-hmm. And so this scholar... Uh, named Lorenzo Valla in the 1400s. He dies about uh, in the mid 1400s, and uh, he he studies this. His study of he's a scholar of Latin, and he realizes there's words in this document that didn't exist at the time of Constantine. Uh, so yeah. you know, like, and yet they're in the letter. Yeah, exactly. So which is the forgery. which is the basis? Yeah. yeah, which is the basis of the Catholic Church's. Is well, one of the bases. Yeah, their their property. Basically. So it's one. Of, yeah, it's yeah. one of the. I mean. So he, he and you know, legitimacy and authority, et cetera. So he's like, this is a this is a forgery, and mm-hmm. then of course the next generation is a guy named uh, Desiderius Erasmus who died fifteen thirty six, a very famous scholar from Rotter- Rotterdam. There's a font named after him, by the way. Yeah, that's uh, that's good. I'm Erasmus. glad uh, <laughs> that's all of our connection to Erasmus. Uh, so the um, he basically he kind of does the same thing for Greek. So he. Gets, he's actually wants to reconstruct this the early the actual original Greek text of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So he gets a lot of early manuscripts, and he realizes, for example, there's this book, verse one John uh, five uh, through seven. I think it's called the Johannine Kama. It says in English, it says there there are three who bear testament in the heavens: the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. Um, so that's the only... Which is a Trinity verse. Yeah, that's the yeah. only explicit discussion of the Trinity that's what, in the uh, New Testament. Um, a lot of uh, people put all over, like, 
like in, on themselves, like tattoo it games, on themselves. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I've always like, wondered. What does it know, say? John one dash colon John, five. One John. Uh, somebody look it up. Uh, five Johann, colon three. Johann common. So comma. Yeah. So Johann comma. So the uh, basically the he realized this isn't actually in the early manuscripts. Really? It's a later edition. Wow. So then I mean that's their whole So then he right gets there. really attacked. So he gets very <laughs> he get he, he says basically okay. He's getting a, this is like you know Twitter Twitter awards. He gets Twitter award right, <laughs> and he says, "Okay, you know if someone can give me an early Greek manuscript yeah. that has this, I'll put it back in my edition." So okay, and some, so someone comes up with a you know quote unquote version with it. And so concedes. Hold yeah. on a second. So let's backtrack. Erasmus is who exactly? Erasmus, when, when is he living? Erasmus died in 1536. So died in 1536. These guys, these where is he living? Are, he's from originally from Rotterdam, which is. He, it's in the Netherlands. The Netherlands. So he lives okay. in, he moves around. He lives in. These guys are like Muslim scholars, right? So they, they, he goes and lives in England for a while. He hangs okay. out with Thomas More. He goes and lives in France and Switzerland, all over the place. So he's in the era of right after the Protestant Revolution. No. Reformation. He's, he's an interesting guy because his life spans both the discovery of the Americas and the Protestant Reformation. Okay, interesting. So, okay, so he's a scholar of Latin and Greek. He's a scholar of language, of, language. of, of Latin and Greek. And, right? and who asked him to do what? He does the stuff on his own. On his own. He wants to do what? To he translate wants, the Bible? He wants to, he wants to find out the original versions of these texts. Okay. He wants to purify language. So he's working with what Bible? Greek? Uh, well, Which Bible so is he basically with? what was being, what was used from roughly the, um, Roughly the, the the fifth or sixth century onward mm -hmm. uh, uh, is the what's called the Latin Vulgate, which is produced by uh, Saint Jerome. Okay, so that's the, the Bible the he's century. in his between his hands. It's a lot. So the Latin Vulgate, yeah. So he wants to go and say, well, let's, that's let's not, look at the original one. Yeah. So that's not the original language of the New Testament or the yeah. Old Testament, right? Yeah. So it's the it's um, uh, it was in Greek and parts of it, in, just, you know, one or two parts in Aramaic. But well, point, Greek is also the a second a translation. Well, the, yeah, but Greek was what it was originally written in. Written in, okay. I mean, it wasn't. Which is a translation. They weren't speaking, so it'd be like. If you know, if I wrote an Arabic history, an Arabic history of our podcast, uh -huh. that would be like the, the New Testament. I so I'm, okay. I'm I'm trans I'm, I'm translating from our original language, but that that's my original my when I write this book, it's going to be in Arabic. So he gets he he gets a, a hold of the Greek version ver, uh, translation early of the early. So he one of the things that happens through in the Renaissance is this transmission, the actual discovery and transmission of texts from Muslims in Spain, mm -hmm. Muslims in Sicily and the Byzantine Empire. So it's, it's also remember, it's not a it's not a uh, coincidence that this starts in the 1300s, 1400s, 1500s, when Byzantine territory is shrinking dramatically mm -hmm. uh, uh, due to Ottoman expansion. So yeah. uh, Byzantine scholars, Greek-speaking scholars, are just like flooding into the Latin West mm. with all their manuscripts and all their histories mm -hmm. and things like that. Also so, the Reconquista, right? Yeah, and the Reconquista, yeah. So then he goes in and he's he's opening, he opens up a Greek manuscript. Lots of Greek manuscripts. Lots of Greek manuscripts. And, and he, he doesn't find this main Yeah, major you know verse. another thing that's not in there, by the way, it's really, you know the, the he who... Let he who him who uh, let he without sin cast, cast the, the first, first stone. stone. Oh, that's not in there. That's either. not in there. Who saw the movie The Passion? I did. Yeah, yeah I saw that in Egypt. It was really weird. How the hell did I see that in Egypt? I, you know, I saw it on some guy's laptop in an internet cafe. That was it. Those were the days, must have been man. like two thousand or two thousand two. So then, yeah. but there's like that scene in the movie is like the coolest scene. 
Yeah, you know, I, I don't remember that scene, but I mean that. I so didn't the, see it. So he, uh, you're very pure, my brother. So this, uh, <laughs> so this, uh, this scene's not in. So he even says, he's like, this is a, this is a really great story, but yeah. it wasn't really part of the Bible. But he kept wow. it in because he was like, this is just an excellent story. <laughs> so, but this, <laughs> Wait, wait so, <laughs> this is the only reference to the Trinity in the Bible. I, I mean, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't want to. I'm not a, b- a bit scholar of the Bible. No, I've actually, I've actually come across that. That's the verse. And yeah. there's no other reference. I've come across that. Like yeah, in, so this is this is definitely summaries. this is yeah. I mean, I don't. I, I, I as a matter of principle, I don't tell other religious traditions whether or not they've done a good job interpreting and understanding the scriptures. Yeah. But I mean, I, I think that it's pr- fairly well established that this is the only explicit mention of the Trinity. Of the Trinity. Yeah. And it, and he only finds it in the Latin Bibles and not in well, the. Well, he Greeks. doesn't find it in the early Greek manuscripts. Not in an early Greek man. Early Greek man. Later so, Greek. Yeah, Later so Greek then, so then he ends up putting it in because again, he really got you know he got he got like Twitter got death slammed. by death by Twitter mob yeah. over this. And and how how are the, at that time? I'm just curious. How are they sharing their knowledge? Like for example, he discovers this. Does he write an essay, an epistle, saying yeah. I looked at this, 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 this? Well, he, pub- he published there. a an edition of the New Testament. He published that edition, and that yeah. means that he's paying a scribe. I'm just trying to. Well, imagine now the they have. Man, now they have printing presses. Oh, he's in that time. Oh, right. Okay, that's yeah. True. So they can. So he publishes stuff. it. Yeah. Okay, in Latin. Uh, in, trans- Greek. In, in Greek. Greek. Yeah. Okay, he publishes in Greek, and uh, he gets slammed by the scholars of his day for yeah. not including that verse. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's that's actually light. If someone published a Quran without Surah Al-Ikhlas, he wouldn't get slammed. <laughs> he would be get preyed upon. Right? Yeah, <laughs> or not preyed upon. <laughs> or not preyed upon. It was yeah. a mistake. Well, yeah. I didn't. He didn't mean yani yudalahu. He meant yuktal. Yuktal. No, he's saying yuktal wala yusalla. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the you know this. Um, yeah. But you know that's the thing. I mean, just a little aside. I think like you know. Muslims are really hard on themselves, but you know, Muslims have a lot of ghira for their religion. They have a lot of jealousy yeah. and concern for their religion and for their book and for their prophet. And yeah. that's, that's, well, I remember listening to a, a, a radio show. You know, in Washington, the um, uh, the Miami folks, they had a radio program. I didn't right? know that. Oh, yeah, they did. They had a show. They had like a show, and Dr. Uh, Nasser used to get interviewed like a couple times a week oh, okay. on that show. And one of the guys interviewed him, and he said, you know, they Muslims, and they, they, they accuse us of, of being angry for the Prophet, peace be upon him, and stuff. And Dr. Nasser said, I, a Catholic priest also uh, brought that up to me. And he said, uh, what are you going to tell your community? They get, keep uh, burning things down every time someone curses the Prophet. He said, well, they're, we're very emotionally connected to our Prophet. And if you find that, you know, that's different from your followers that's really your followers problem <laughs> why you couldn't transmit that love to to your followers yeah and actually, you know yeah, no we are we are pretty hard on ourselves as muslims but if you actually look at the way muslims take religion yeah. compared to other religions like i obviously i travel a lot i must have gone to over 40 countries and i pray on the go so i've prayed in almost every major airport in the world that's crazy and all of them typically have prayer space yeah only used by Muslims. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love them. They're, they're like it's like spiritual like, space. Center, yeah, yeah. The and be- there's like you know the some Belgium. like there's yeah. some like crystal power thing over in one corner, and then it's just all yeah. all prayer rugs. Yeah. Any time of day, I'm going there, and there will be Muslims in that. Like in Belgium, they have one for each religion. Yeah, 
They're empty. They're yeah. empty. But the, the Muslim one is, is packed. Packed. And, and we're they're... talking in Belgium. It's not a Muslim country. Yeah, no, yeah. you you pass by these. There's always someone rolling down his pants. He just made wudu, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's and he's mumbling, <laughs> come, come. <laughs> and someone walks in, uh, two or four, asr <laughs> dhor. So so, so now in universities too. Yeah, same thing. So now you get to the point. So these three so, things cast some kind of so, doubt so then about their. So what happens is there's a couple of things. The one is like the sense of distance. Like you start to see yourself as different from the past. Yeah. So instead of thinking of yourself as we're a continuation of the Roman tradition, you feel there's a break. You see, you see, look, you think, look at, for example, this is something that there's a poet, a Latin poet named uh, Petrarch, yeah. died in 1374. He wrote a book. It isn't a lot of books, but one of them has been translated to English. It's called The Secret. Mm-hmm. It's actually really beautiful. I, I recommend uh, reading it. And um, he. He talk, He realizes Cicero, like this guy wasn't, you know, because the kind of the the Christian, the classical Christian, uh, kind of the classics and Christian um, uh, reconciliation or, or or hybrid of the Middle Ages, where you know Aristotle and uh, Roman philosophy and all this stuff, or Roman logic, and this is like you know reconciled with Christianity. Yeah, that wasn't. These guys weren't Christians. Like Cicero was not a Christian. Yeah, right? a right? These guys were these guys were pagans. Yeah. And they not only that, but they had, you know, they they see they find in someone in Cicero this um something you will recognize very, very uh, quickly because it's we've inherited it from the Renaissance, which is this notion of um Cicero was very publicly reverential towards Roman religion. You you would, like go out, you do the rituals. But back when you're talking with your friends, it's it's all just silly. Yeah. You know? So there's that idea that you public reverence. It's it's like kind of like American politicians, right? They're yeah. publicly reverential, but in private, you know, everyone it's this is all silly, silly yeah. stuff, right? That's so the chronic that, definition of a of a nephric. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, but so the, but then and so the that's another thing they discover in these texts is that the works of someone like Herodotus died for, around 420 BC. Uh, a guy named uh, uh, Polybius, a yeah. Greek historian writing in Rome and about Rome. He died around one, I think, one thirty uh, BC. Polybius, and the they discover the model of the historian not as a Christian chronicler, but as a kind of detached analyst. Yeah. So if you read, like, if you guys have read his, the Herodotus's histories, it's fascinating. So he talks about the Trojan War. He's like, Helen was never at Troy. Mm. Why? Who is going to fight 10 years? Like They would just give the, like, okay, you know what? One year has gone by. Why don't you take Helen back? Yeah. You know, no big deal. Like, <laughs> it's just a, ten, 10 years. You don't fight for 10 years for yeah. this. So what? this is very important. One thing uh, is this notion of human nature as a fixed uh, phenomenon. Yeah. Right? So that human beings, this is how Gre- the Greco-Roman view of history was it cyclical. There's no change in history. Yeah. Just the wheel of fortune goes round and round and round. Sometimes you go rich, sometimes you're poor. But humans are always the same. Mm. And that becomes a very important way of thinking about history that allows Western historians to go back and say, I know what happened in the past because people in the past were just like people now. Mm. If people now are greedy bastards who always just want whatever they want and trying to you know, maximize their gain and all this stuff like that, and they're cynical and nasty, that's what people were in the past. That's mm. very different from the way that Christians thought about the time of Jesus or Muslims yeah. think about the companions. Or the prophet lays out We don't think about the companions of like other people. Yeah. So um, then the other thing to discover, as I said before, is the notion of the of the, the historian as the detached analyst. So someone mm. like Tacitus, uh, who's a historian, 
It dies around 130 of the common era, or Polybius, as I mentioned earlier. Polybius says that the job of the historian is to be, he has to be ready to criticize his friends and praise his enemies. So you kind of, the historian as the detached analyst. Yeah. So this stuff is all discovered. For, a couple of things come out of the Greco-Roman tradition. One, the idea that you go back and you discover these texts and you start to realize how much language has changed and how much texts have been doctored. Two, notion of historical distance, how we're really just different from the past. Yeah. Okay. Three, uh, the idea that there's a fixed human nature doesn't change over time. And four, uh, the notion of a historian writing as a kind of detached and sort of, I don't want to say supercilious, but almost um, kind of haughty, the historian is writing about, like, you know how people, if you go and go into a history section of a bookstore and you pick up a book, it doesn't just talk about the past in a matter-of-fact way. It's always making these kind of quips and jokes and things like that. And this guy was so silly, he did this. Yeah. So, so there's almost a supercilious attitude towards the past. So, go ahead, Nazem. Yeah, so about this idea of uh, the historian being detached, right? If you read, let's say, like Muslim historians versus Herodotus or any of the Roman guys, like Herodotus and these Roman guys, they have a huge suspicion about human beings. So my question is, like, how is that really detached? Well, they don't have they don't have a huge suspicion about human beings so much. Uh, they they just they just talk about human beings as they know them, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Muslims are the same way. Muslim historians are the same way when they're not writing about the companions, of the, when they're not writing about the kind of early period of Islam. Mm-hmm. No, so basically the summary is is that around the Renaissance or around this fifteen hundred time period, uh, that century. Western intellectuals end up with an identity crisis and a mistrust of not only the past but authority and in particular religious authority because they found them to be liars. Yeah, so that's another big product of the Protestant Reformation. The the Protestant Reformation is suddenly you have open and uh, incentivized mistrust of authority, of religious authority. And uh, what so then one group that comes. Uh, the Quakers in the the early 1600s, this one, uh, they are the most skeptical of the text of the, the New, New Testament. This is very interesting. They, some of them, uh, not all of them, but some of them write just with almost, uh, I mean, real skepticism about the text. Well, they say the text is not authentic. It's been doctored. And they say that, look, the real message of Jesus, the, the real guidance of Jesus is the, the divine light that God casts into your heart, the Christ within. Yeah. So they follow they follow more like the inner Christ than the actual text of the New Testament. So uh, one of the ulama, he wrote uh, a type of letter and advice to, this was interesting, letter of advice to uh, ulama or people in the ummah who are getting older. And he said that you are like to the, to the, set, to the khalaf, to the next generation, the khalaf and the Older are the salaf and then the khalaf. He said, you are the uh, salaf of a coming khalaf. So you are the elders. You are as if you're the parents of the next generation. Every generation are the parents of the next generation, right? So he said, now monitor and make sure that the number one thing that they could do is trust you, mm-hmm. right? All right. So th- what you're saying that happened in Europe seems to be, it's almost like uh, a divorced, uh, the children of a divorce, Right. Where this massive break happens and everyone remembers that year as the year of the divorce. Everything is now judged now from two years from the divorce, three years from the divorce. Everything's judged by that. And then whoever the villain is of the divorce, 
Usually, um, according to one psych, uh, report that I read, is that usually each parent, each a kid, will, will assign one of the parents as the villain and one as the victim. Mm. Right? Usually, like younger kids will make it black and white that there's one villain, there's one victim. Then the villain, everything about the villain becomes mistrusted if they see it in someone mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. So let's say someone villainizes the mom. Let's say, right? They say the mom was so bad, ruined my dad. He now he has everything about his mom. Let's say if she was into like beauty and she was into whatever. Pilates, it, Pilates. Yeah, all those things, <laughs> right? <laughs> they actually start to mistrust anyone who has those qualities, right, right. right? So what you're saying is actually seems like a very, but this is at the at the civilizational level. So that really starts in the, you see this very clearly in the 1700s. Someone like Voltaire died yeah. in 1778. Mm-hmm. This guy's hatred for the Catholic Church was just epic. I mean, it made him... Mad funny, though. <laughs> I mean, he, he would just... Like, he would praise Islam and praise Jews. Groups, he didn't, he didn't like Jews at all, for example. But he would praise whoever if it helped him make the Catholic Church look bad, wow. right? So he was just... So, for example, a lot of his anti-slavery discussions are not because he thought slavery was was wrong inherently. It's because you the, the Catholic the church. church was supporting yeah. it. Yeah. So uh, that's definitely true. And you see, I mean, I, there's like a lot of anti-clericalism in the, the emergence of a modern view of the world. No, you know how uh, we have the hadith that uh, you're going to copy the people who go uh, who preceded you, and you're going to copy them, even if they go down a lizard hole, meaning the smallest detail, right? Now, what about the most massive uh, things, which are, your way of thinking, your way of viewing the world, your way of viewing your imams, your way of viewing your past, right? So we are now, and you're noticing this in academia, we now have a lot of Muslims who actually do, their minds have adopted this framework of mistrust of the past. Like we're in a modern time, so we have an identity crisis, like we're not connected to the past, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, They they were just guys, just like we're guys, hungry to, to succeed, whatever, right? And so they've taken this on, and it now is in the Arab world too. Yeah, right? it's not just in the West; it's in the Arab world too. Egyptians have this, right? You see writers who have this, who now view the prophets' generation, and the Sahab, and the next two, and the next three, uh, three first three generations, in the same way that you have now the Renaissance and Reformation and Protestant Reformation, and all these guys viewing and trying to tear down. Like we need to tear it down, right? Yeah. That that idea, you see this now in Muslim intellectuals. There's a book that came out in uh, 1958 um, called um, Adwa ala Muhammadiyah by Muhammad Abu Rayya, mm-hmm. died around 1970. And uh, he was a student of Rashid Rida. Mm-hmm. And uh, that book is like the most uh, comprehensive it? and aggressive attack on the Hadith tradition. And it's offensive too. And he say something like these old men with these big hats and turbans. Yeah, and I mean, he's, he's mocking he's, them. He's, and he just uh, calls Muhammad, right? He just says Muhammad. I can't remember. Oh, no, that. the other one. The, no, what I'm talking about is a, a book named um, Muhammad, uh, something like Muhammad, another man. Right. Yeah. And it's tearing down everything that relates to so this, the sanctity. So of the this Prophet. this book, Adu'a Asun Muhammad, isn't, isn't necessarily, it's not irreverence. Mm-hmm. It's basically, you can imagine, kind of a neo-Mu'tazilite. Yeah. Uh, but the point is, he's, his criticisms are very much the type of criticism of a Western historian. You know, he says the companions are like any other people. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, 
you know, they were selfish and censored and, 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 you know, self-involved and wanted to advance their own interests and unreliable. Uh, but by the way, another thing I forgot to mention uh, is another uh, element of the Greco-Roman heritage that is revived. There's two things. Is uh, One is skepticism, literally a philosoph philosophy called skepticism, which is they got from a scholar named Sext Sextus Empiricus who lived died around 200 A.D., and uh, a lot of the idea that human beings cannot. So skeptics were uh, they believed that uh, right and wrong, absolute right and wrong, absolute truth was just simply unknowable. It was unknowable. In fact, even sense perception was not really reliable. And they used the example of a stick. You know, you put it in the water and you look at the stick, it appears to bend, yeah. mm -hmm. um, which, of course, it's not really bent. So how how can we really even trust sense perception? So what they said is, look, um, Right and wrong, can't really know about. Uh, so basically, just behave according to the custom of the city you live in. That's yeah. right and wrong. And that has a big impact on Europe, Western Europe after the 1500s because this idea of, for, you know, let's not talk about God anymore. Let's not talk about metaphysics anymore. Let's not talk about reality. Anymore. Let's just study the world around us. Um, what's going to matter is our, is our customs, our morals, and... And we're going to do science. Now, science isn't going to mean the pursuit of knowledge in the metaphysical sense, in the ultimate sense. It can be the pursuit of knowledge in the mater material, empirical sense. Around control us. of science. Yeah. Control yeah. of, of And so nature. then th this idea, there's another, if you've read this book, uh, it's called in Latin, De Rerum Natura. It's been translated numerous times by a guy named Lucretius. He died, I think, around you know, 20 or 17 BC. Fascinating guy. Fascinating guy. Actually, Marx's dissertation was... Uh, um, Karl Marx's dissertation was on Lucretius. Wait, is he a materialist? He is the materialist. Oh, yeah. He's mm. the like the the chief materialist. I told you that's our philosopher right there. No. So <laughs> this, this guy is uh, yeah. So Lucretius. I mean, for him, you know, there's nothing. Nothing exists but the material world. The gods are just people that are like bigger and stronger and longer lasting than us. Um, it's not Zeus making the thunder. It's 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 just lightning in the sky and all this stuff like that. So this also, just the idea that, look, the only thing around you is the material world. You want to study something, study the material world. Then they just rediscover, they're at the same time they're rediscovering the science of Aristotle, not, not in the... The biology. Not what we, yeah. not what, this, no, natural science, yeah. or sorry, natural philosophy, which is what we call science, yeah. you know, the hard sciences. And so they start, they start in the in cities like Padua in the 1400s, 1500s, they start doing like, okay, let's come up with a theory and then we do an experiment we get a result and so they actually start developing the scientific method by taking aristotle's scientific writing not his philosophical writing not his metaphysical writing and then this by the 1700s this so what's interesting in the 1600s like the biggest scientists in the western tradition people like um uh say muhammad uh pascal blaise pascal died in mm -hmm. 1662 these they're in the 1600s there are no major scientists who are not committed Christians, the, and and I mean I mean like the the scientists who we respect, like right. today you know Boyle, Pascal, all, you know all these guys. Well, Newton's an interesting guy. He's a little bit later. He's like has he he's a he's a he believes in God. But he's like a Unitarian. He doesn't believe in the Trinity. But the point is, these guys, Pascal was like super. You know these, you know, the, like the Daisy doctors who are <laughs> like they're like, like they they're like the leading scholar in their f like biological field, yeah. but then they like also believe the Earth is flat or something like that. Yeah. Like I'm not, uh, I'm not. That's an extreme case. I'm not. <laughs> uh, I'm just. My point is like you meet you meet these people and you're like Subhanallah, these guys are. I'm really happy that they 
their iman is so strong and they're so into their scientific field that they don't perceive any same thing with Blaise pascal he was he was so fideistic in his re- religious belief in his christian belief like he was like he would today people would be like this guy is like a flat earther almost like that's right, how yeah. fide- like faith-based he was but what he's, and he what he was doing is he's like look in order to protect christianity you have to take it completely out of the realm of reason. You do not discuss it about with reason at all. And then he goes and just does some serious, hardcore experimentation on the natural world. Sure. I mean, there's a guy, um, at, I think it's some university in the South, who's a young earth creationist, and he's also a physicist. Yeah, I mean, oh, wow. you know. but, if you imagine, but imagine <laughs> that guy is, is, is like the leading guy, physicist, yeah. you know, yeah. like developed physics. So yeah. the point is that there's a there's a way to be a materialist in the sense that it, when we talked, I talked about this idea that you know skepticism leads Western scholars to kind of start to focus on this li- this world and empirical sure. observation only, and not yeah. think about metaphysics. That that can be done respectfully, right? So you can say, look, we can study this stuff and we can think let's not think about that stuff right now or let's not think about it at all but we can still respect it and we're not going to be snarky yeah. about it but what happens in the 1700s you start getting this really crass materialism this idea that not only is the metaphysical world unknowable but it's it's just contemptible and so you just have contempt for it and what would in your analysis what do you think is that led to that specifically in europe i think um just my own kind of amateur idea would be um because I think that it was associated with the Catholic Church. You yeah. know, it was associated because in America the, you didn't get it that strongly. No, I don't think so. A, a lot of these, te- a lot of these trends took a lot longer to get to uh, the U.S. and to Scotland, two places where they, where there was more of a kind of like a religious, strong, like evangelical Protestant religious force. Sure. I remember, by the way, like all these, you know, all our beloved fellow Americans in Texas who are in the south who have strong religious beliefs these guys are all like descendants of scottish presbyterians you know like like first all these like norwegians and germans went and settled down there and they're all like mellow and drinking beer and stuff and the hardcore scottish presbyterians like my ancestors went down there and were like you guys need to shape up so that that mean that that, that's a i think the it's it's less forceful in in u.s because you don't have this the the historical legacy of the catholic church i people have anti-clericalism in europe and anti-religion in europe are um, uh, significantly linked to and historical animosity yeah. to the Catholic Church. But then once uh, once the philosophy did get to Scotland, I mean, they produced some of the, the biggest like atheistic, skeptic philosophers. Right? Yeah, like yeah, in the 18th and, century. Yeah, and just sort of like, you know, dismantled philosophy after that. Like, like Kant was responding, like Kant was dealing with this problem of like, how do we protect faith but also do science? It yeah. Was trying to resolve this. So, I mean, of course, yeah, definitely. There were yeah. like Hutchison and Hume and Thomas Reed and people like yeah. that. There was a lot of the, the kind of Scottish Enlightenment in the 1700s. They were, these people were pretty skeptical. But uh, they're, you know, they, they don't represent the religious uh, element of, of that national personality. Sure. So then um, I can't remember what we were talking about. But I think I think we got, uh, I think I covered pretty much everything about the story the, the, the origin Western of the historical i mean and then of course this all kind of comes together in the 1600s i mean a big so uh, an important an important i just wanted to add one thing which is an important conclusion that's come to kind of through all these things we put together in the, in by the 1600s is the idea that the bible is not god it's not like the you know it's not like god drops this book boom on history and it's like this is the truth. This is sure. God's truth. They realize 
this is one, the product of history. It's been changed a lot. It's not necessarily reliable. It's not even necessarily the story of all of humanity. It's this really particular story. So I have a question then. It, hang on one second. So it becomes no. like, I'm sorry to interrupt you. No problem. Go ahead. It's, it's, it becomes, it's not the truth. It's an example of, it's useful, it's wonderful, it's inspirational, but it's not the truth. The truth is known through reason mm. uh, and <laughs> through kind of basic common sense. And the Bible was a book for a certain time. And we need to read it now as not as it's speaking to us, but as it was speaking to those people back then. Now, uh, not, none of us here are psychiatrists but, or psychologists, but maybe we know that someone here knows how to, when someone comes out of a divorce and they have that type of, we call it in Arabic, عقدة, mm. right? Someone who's just got a, um, issues, an issue, right? With a specific issue because of a complex, because complex, yeah, of a traumatic Situation and it is traumatic when you discover that you, the the founders of your civilization were, were liars, right? You have a well, they weren't liars. They just well, were. They the, were the, just. They you, were, you mentioned the foundations. The, fraud. Of, the foundations fraud. are unru- What you mentioned that that the uh, donation of Constantine was a fraud. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fraudulent, fine. That right? that was fraudulent. How but about I mean, the Trinity verse? Can Can you imagine? Can you imagine this? The discovery that the Kava was actually not in Mecca. Supposed to be in Jeddah. Right, and that Surah Al Khwarizah. Somebody make an argument for that? No, just imagine. Well, though they will because they copy. Yahuda Yahuda Nevo, this Israeli archaeologist, he made an argument that yeah, Yeah. that the Kaaba was originally in the Negev Desert. Yeah, and then secondly, imagine if uh, we discover something like Surah Al Khwarizah, which of there's Tawheed on like a thousand verses, but uh, just hypothetically, is fraud. Okay, but you know, yeah, but you're, you're but just imagine that you're onto something, Shadi. Yeah. Sorry, Doctor Shadi. By uh, the way, you know when I talk on my phone, I say call Shadi Al Masri. He says calling Shady Al Masri. Shady Al Masri. So the but you're onto something there because what do not only do people have issues that guy who's you know the kid who's born from the divorce or whatever yeah. from the divorce he treats other people the same way. Right, so you start you like you assume all other families got this problem, yeah. all other women have this problem, all other men yeah. have this problem. So what do what do Western? This is the whole point of my chapter. Yeah. What do Western scholars do when they start studying Islamic history? They're like, we know how religions work, we know yep. how scripture works, so yep. this must be the way it works for everybody else. Exactly. And so we got to go and explain to these Muslims who just don't, you know, they're they're these poor people, they're brown, they don't know what's going on, they're all dirty. <laughs> you know, we need to explain to them. We need to send like the white yeah. savior is going to come in and he's going to explain to you what your religion really was. And so yeah. that's to this to this day, you know, almost it's like every 6 months, every 7 months, every 8 months, every year or something yeah. like that. There'll be an article in some newspaper, what major western newspaper, uh 30% Mus- chance is the Atlantic. Yeah, maybe Muslims, 60%. Muslims have Muslims are now questioning these yeah, things. Muslims are yeah. now questioning the scripture. Muslims are now And they should be patted on the back. Yeah, and they're like, hey, you guys are finally yeah. getting it. You yeah. guys are finally getting it, you know? Yeah. And then of course they get upset when like those guys go like, I'm gonna go drive my car into a bunch of people because I read a Quranic verse that tells yeah. me like they're like, Why doesn't someone tell this guy what to do? Like, <laughs> you first you want us to question authority. Yeah. Then you want authority to tell people what to do. Yeah. Anyway. I, I think from a uh, from a um, academic level um, there is that sense of complex there is that sense of skepticism but I think when you look further down like at, at a practical level the average person doesn't really think about it this way they just now adopt this idea of it's the spirit of the law it's not the actual let's follow the law it's about yeah. it's about just you know how we feel about something how we believe in something and I think that's probably starting to seep into Islam as well where people are like do you really need to care about 
praying five times a day versus what type of meat you eat. And and I think the cause of that is a actual literal lack of trust in yeah. when Allah says X, Y, and Z, that it is God who said X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And he means it. Yeah. Right? And I think that's where, you know, we as Muslims really need to be very, very well, well versed to, to kind of address this because it's going to impact, you know, to further generations down the line. It's going to get bigger and bigger like we've seen it in, in other religions. Well, here's yeah. the thing. Just uh, we were ta- what we talked about the other day, age of apostasy, right? Yeah. Well, where did this, all of this stuff and this mistrust and this divorce from the past and tear down everything and we can't trust any of that and now they have all these complexes. Well, where has it led us to? Like uh, what kind of world are we living in today? Like nihilism and all these things. And well, if we're following in that framework and view of our setup right then we're going to have a bulk of people anyone who adopts that will end up and they will take many people with them right also on the way out right out of islam because once you break that trust right it's just a matter of time and many times like a woman if she discovers that her husband cheated on her let's say right she may live with him for another decade but it's not going to be the same and it's just a matter of time where the circumstances change. Like, okay, the kids graduated. Now that crack, which she tried to hold in, right? Now that the kids are no longer dependent upon the two, that thing just bursts open, yeah. right? And it's the same way. That crack is the ma- lack of trust of the sources. And that's why that the, the concept of uh, uh, studying Hadith and comparing it to how the Westerners, modern Westerners have you know what what's the assumptions in their history because of their trauma right uh is is critical it's important for people to understand why you shouldn't have that type of uh skepticism towards your past yeah, and i think that's one of the that's reasons the idea. Uh, dr brown's work is so is so important to, it's totally to, critical to the western muslim to, to the muslim world generally is because like we can do it from you can go to the masjid and you can have someone who's very eloquent and who's your, the imam of your masjid and he explains to you why you should have reverence for these people and why you should just trust that yeah. what's in the sahihain is legitimate and it yeah. can be... But these kids are going to college and they're getting sophisticated arguments countering that. And your imam might be a guy that you really like and you really trust, but he might not be able to counter those. Exactly. Whereas something like what Dr. Brown is doing in his work and, can and, serve that purpose. And, and here's the thing. What we're talking about here... Nazmo, could you go tell him to be quiet down? Yeah, these guys you, are going, they're going to town upstairs. You, you look pretty scary, so you, you go up and tell <laughs> them, don't, don't smile. smile. <laughs> <laughs> so, but this is a mega, I don't know what they call it. This is a mega framework. This is a framework so big, right, that people do not understand that they're in it. Like, we're, what, what galaxy are we in? We're in the Milky Way, right? Oh, well, there's probably, at some point, they'll discover that the Milky Way is in something, too, right? And then that is in, in the universe, right? And we don't even know uh, uh, that, right? So how do you even explain, just to explain this idea? So that little story that you just told in that period, which we're going to cut out as a snippet, right? Yeah. Of these three factors that cause a massive mistrust of authority in general, but religious authority, right? And here you have people f- f- issuing these fraudulent document, documents, fraudulent verses, but they're dressed in the cloth, mm-hmm. Right, mm. so it's worse. It's not even a guy said he, he's a gangster. Well, I I never proclaimed to be good, right? You know, some people are like that. Trump, he got in because of that. He was I never said I was good, right? <laughs> I've always been a dirtbag, right? But here's someone proclaiming to be right that, and we've had s- small little versions of that, 
in our micro ummah in the West, which is very dangerous and scary, of imams, you could say that people throwing casting doubt on them. And maybe they're guilty, and maybe they're somewhat guilty. Maybe they're just misbehaved a little bit. Maybe they're somewhat yeah. immature, well, and maybe they're totally guilty. There's a special right? thing in Islam, right? So, like, even if you look in all the ulama in your area are corrupt, yeah, for which could be possible. That doesn't mean that you can then apply that retroactively to the period of the so, salaf, right? Exactly. And th- that reverence has to come from somewhere, right? And it, it can come from just somebody telling you, no, these people were different. They yeah. were unique. Or it can come from somebody taking the approach that, that uh, Dr. Brown's work takes, which is you look at it and you go, no, look. Look at the work that they actually put in in recording these ahadith. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Look at the way that they, that they the care that they took to, to ensure that false narrations were out, that questionable narrations were out. Which is, which is why I thought of bringing up the point of when you have that kid from that divorce, that exact analogy that we gave, how do the psychologists, psychiatrists talk to them and say not all women are bad, not all men are bad, right? Because of their what they associated with their trauma, right? How, does, how is that? Re- and can it be resolved by talking or does it have to be resolved by experience? Mm-hmm. Right. I think, I think it has to be resolved by experience. Yeah. It's it's definitely resolved by experience because, I mean, Dr. Brown, uh, the reason I like your work so much, right? Uh, misquoting Muhammad, um, before before that reading that book, um, like I just generally had a suspicion of the Islamic tradition. Like, I said I was a Muslim, right? But I it was in your mega framework, right? It was in my framework because I spent most meta narratives. They're yeah, called. Yeah, I spent most of my high school days debating atheists on YouTube. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> and also Christians too. So, a uh, waste of time, obviously. But it's not a waste of time at all, man. You <laughs> learn from you learn from experience. Yeah, it could be right. dangerous too. For it could be dangerous. Very dangerous. Yeah. Very Separate dangerous. Topic. Yeah. So, uh, but after you know, after reading that book, I realized that a lot of my troubles was because there was such a huge historical gap between, like, me and the society of the Prophet Like, oh, like I couldn't imagine somebody not living in, let's say, the twentieth century. Like, yeah. I didn't know what that was like. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And the other thing was, like, I would hear these stories of, you know, this person memorized 200,000 hadith. And, uh, like, I'll be impressed by it, but I was like, eh, is, yeah. it, is it really true? Yeah. And then I met somebody, one of my teachers, right? Uh, he studied 13 years in Medina. And he's memorized, you know, um, Ibn Hajar's book. Mm-hmm. The Fath al-Bari Yeah uh, Not Fath al-Bari al-Maram Bulug al-Maram Yeah And then I just When he said that Like he didn't say it Like I heard somebody Say that he memorized it And I asked him He's like yeah And I just My mouth just yeah. Fell open Yeah That's like a prerequisite yeah, To that, get into some yeah, schools yeah, yeah, By the that's way That's what I mean about What yeah. You know when We we have a Today in an urban And western world We have a very specific Idea of what's possible What's not possible right. yeah. like, That's impossible yeah. If you going, I mean, that's why I think it's really interesting when I tell my students about just Muslims memorizing the Quran. Mm-hmm. They're like, that's not possible. Like, yeah, yeah. You, kids memorize, regular kids, like someone in this class memorized the entire Quran word for word, yeah. word for word. Yeah. And then I, I was the same way with you. I'd be like, this is 2,100, 200,000 yeah, hadiths, exactly. whatever. You can't remember. And then people, you meet people, and they're like, you ask them, where's this hadith? They say, it's in this book narrated by this is now. Yeah, it's in this yeah, book yeah. narrated by this is now. Yeah. And then, by the way, you look at the early, the, let's say Ibn Hajar or Ibn Adi in the 900s or any of these people. How were they writing their books? Like, they didn't have databases. They didn't, <laughs> yeah. have, even in, they didn't even have indexes. It's just insane. Yeah. They yeah. Were, their brains were just uh, computers. Well, you know the analogy that I always bring up to people when they talk about memorization and stuff? Uh, listen to sports radio. 
those guys have statistics from the 60s, <laughs> right, 70s. And, and when they're talking, you know that they're not pulling it up on the computer right away. Yeah. Like today's statistic he's pulling up, right? But when he's comparing today's statistics to like what Roger Staubach did in whatever century, decade he was playing, whatever, right? I mean, these guys are also, yeah. these sports uh, radio hosts, they're like viewed by society as these meatheads. But they're very skilled in certain things. They we, have have, we have to have a hips off, hips <laughs> off between the sports radio guys and the yeah. shenanigans. There's a there's a there's a certain capacity, um, and I see men focusing more on this kind of stuff. Where you you find this area of interest and you zoom in on it, right? And then you 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 just start drilling down and you memorize and you learn oh everything. Gosh, like yeah. there's people who not invented categorized and learned like a language from Star Trek yeah. or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. And they know all the facts that they know. Uh, they know yeah. the they know like the serial numbers on ships in the yeah. show and it's it's just a thing it's just like this obsessive quality that and yeah. it's mostly males that I've that I've observed in whether it's sports, whether yeah. it's religion. Obsessive. Like, and yeah. alhamdulillah it serves a good purpose when you do it for a religious purpose, right? And and uh, if you ever talk to anyone who's lived in the Shanqit and tell you about life there. So life there, um, we know it's hot in the day. It's Mauritania. Mauritania. Yeah. And they're studying all day. Now the evening time, if someone comes back from the marketplace with uh, tea he said, they used to tell me that the evening time was that they would make the tea and the, their method of making the tea is really heavy and they keep uh, pouring it back into the boiler. They, put, they, uh, they pour it into the cup, then pour it back into the thing to boil a second time, right? So it cools down, then boils. It takes a long time because they have all this time in the world. Right. And it's finally cool and they got the flames on. So what do they do? They sit around and they do al-ghaz, which is fiqh uh, riddles. Like what happens if this happened? What happened if that happened? They would have um, every Thursday, actually, something that Murabta uh, Hajj, Rahimahullah, Munafa'an he used to do with the kids is he would have a hips competition every Thursday of who could go the longest without a mistake. Mm. Right? <laughs> and they would just sit there. Right? Who could go the longest without a mistake? Right? I think, I think so all day and all night. What other hobby did they have? Nothing except religious texts. Yeah. So the idea that they memorize them is well, wait, part part of the reason that this seems weird to uh, modern Western people is that we don't we don't even force memorization of like anything in What's school the, anymore. Not even you used to memorize poetry when you were a little kid, yeah, 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 like yeah. fifty years ago. That's You're not why, even financially rewarded to memorize yeah, anything. That's why yeah. we're so bad at spousal arguing. You know, imagine like yeah. you're again a fight with your wife and like shinkit. Yeah. And you're like, name one time I did that. She's like, okay, okay, you can stop. That's funny. Now, so I think we covered the historical part pretty well, right? Yeah. I'll just mention one other thing. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that student of Rashid Riddhas that you mentioned, uh, Dr. Brown, that wrote that book. I, you know, there's, you can make the academic arguments again. Somebody like that would never have existed in just a few generations earlier, right? Like you have the story in Qadi Ayyad. Uh, you know what would have existed? His genesis. Yeah, because Qadi Ayyad <laughs> relates a, a, a story of a man or an incident of a man who said about the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that he wasn't, he didn't eat the simple foods that he ate because he, because for, for religious reasons, just that it was more luxurious things weren't available to him. Yeah. And if they he were, he would have. Yeah. Oh, right? okay, yeah. He yeah. would have eaten them. Yeah. And they killed him. In Andalus, that was it. He was like, <laughs> "There's no, there's no like, there's no repentance. There's no opportunity to take it back." Yeah, I'm telling you, you we were talking it. the other day. How yesterday we were saying that um, uh, the the Madikis there almost go to the point of being so, like some of the Takfiris, right? But if, if in fact look at his historically, look at their societies, right? Dean wise, they have these like sort of. It's almost like 
having military guards around your doctrine, right? That will just off with your head for anything. However, all right, look at the result. You'd find, I, I haven't seen a lot heretical groups like growing in the society. Like there maybe have individuals for sure, right? But growing as like existing normally in the society, right? Mm-hmm. They, they had a type of uh, pur- purity over generations in that sp- space between Andalus and uh, the Maghreb and down into Africa that should be something that we consider like a massive accomplishment. And we should actually document, it should be like, you could probably look at these things and maybe you can tell me if I'm wrong, but that, that they were so serious about these issues, but that look at the result, you got results, right? Yeah. Even like they're weird, they're kind of Murabit, uh, not Murabit, but the Muahidun mm-hmm. uh, Mohed movement. Yeah. That was inspired by the Ibn Tumar. He went to the east. He went, he to, went to the east, east and got and, corrupted yeah. in the east, right? Yeah, he came back. He yeah, came an back. Interesting point. Yeah. So, uh, but also look at um, what's said about them, right? Mm-hmm. It said that Asham Mahalul Anbiya, Wal Maghrib Mahalul Awliya, right? Mm-hmm. Why? Because when your aqid is pure, then Allah loves you, right? Then your ibad, when you add ibadah to that, right? Then the ingredients of wilaya are right there, Amen. and they and they look at the the wilaya of the maghrib. It's unbelievable. The people I mean, attribute it to be considered the awliya. If you want like a simple visual proof, the Eastern Malikis pray with their arms folded. Yeah, like come on, oh, really? <laughs> they do. <laughs> what is there, that? there are Eastern Malikis? You know yeah. that Qadi Abu Bakr ibn Arabi was one of the people who went against the grain. He felt that the Malikis are too tight, and he went against them on a number of issues. One of them was the hands. So right. he said uh, Qabd? He said, but he said uh, like something that, that his aunts or his, the, the common Muslims in his family told him to stop this. It's not good, right? He said, well, the evidence. He said, but they said it's not good. He said, well, I have the evidence, right? And they, would, they didn't know how to, they just said it doesn't feel right, right? <laughs> so he said then uh, Allah proved them right one time when I was taking a, a little ferry across the ocean to come down to the Maghrib, right? And one man saw me in the cabin, right, praying with Qabd. He gathered the boat and he said, we have an Eastern spy amongst us. <laughs> <laughs> and he was held, oh interrogated, right? And they were going to throw him into the water for Khiana. He said, then my, I realized my aunt and my mom were right. <laughs> but the, I have a question. Go yeah, on. I was just going to say one thing. I was just, uh, One more thing I was going to say um, uh, about this was, um, I actually forgot what I was going to say. So anyway, you make your point. Yeah. So. Oh yeah, I remember what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Psych. Yeah. He's in his rookie year, so he could be interrupted. Yeah, yeah. So what I was to say is that the only thing, the one thing that the uh, the Madikis had was they had a wall against um, uh, a lot of the things that the Sufis did, and they were the last people to admit and allow for many of the things that the Sufiya did, right? The gatherings and festivals and whatnot. They put up a wall. They didn't like it. They didn't want it, right? It came in. What came into the, all the ummahs, they actually yeah. like, we actually need this. The times are changing. We need to do this, yeah. to expand these things a little bit. So uh, it, they came in. It came in the Shafi countries first because Imam Shafi's definition of bid'ah was so vast. Right. Like, I mean, uh, uh, it, he was more flexible on mm-hmm. his definition of bid'ah. It came into the Madikis last. Okay. Uh, the Hanbalis should know that it came to them first. They have more <laughs> Sufi Hanbalis before they were Sufi Madikis, right? 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 Yeah. yeah. So, Ibn Taymiyyah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But actual legitimate, actual turuq with, with bay'ahs and gatherings and everything. Yeah. But, and then when it came to the, to, into the Madikis, 
right? The one thing that they can be criticized for is that at some point it did go haywire and they did have goofs, right? <laughs> goofia. But, goofia. But they eventually they reached a happy medium, right? Yeah. Where they were strong on, on certain things and they and they and you could count, uh, this is okay, this is okay, this is okay, uh, from the from the, their hardcore ulama, such as like Qadi Ayyad. Right. But you see, things. even Sheikh Ahmed Zarouq, uh, yeah. he's, he's very skeptical of yeah. uh, visitation yeah. of graves and things. Yeah, yeah. he doesn't like the excesses. Yeah, he doesn't like Samaa. Yeah, he doesn't like excesses. Okay, Nazmul, now you could talk. So I, I just want to be contrarian here. Okay. Because <laughs> um, throw in some disagreement. So this idea of questioning authority and being suspicious of the Islamic tradition and so on, I mean, I not that I hold this opinion, asking for a friend, um, <laughs> it's, like, aren't some of those says every single person who has a question? My, my friend is a rash. My friend has like a rash. <laughs> a rash. <laughs> Sorry, bad joke. Uh, okay, so like, aren't some of these things from the Enlightenment? Aren't they good points in terms of you know, like, you should look at if texts have been doctored. You shouldn't uh, just blindly accept uh, an authority figure just because you know they say I'm an authority figure and they can't provide an argument. That's 100% true, of course. And I, guess yeah. guess who is always very firm on these points? Muslims. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. like, right, right, right. I mean that the you know, uh, I, which like, is hadith criticism. Yeah, I mean that's right. what the, these Jarh guys like, when you look at the even the study of manuscripts. I mean, when you look, let's just just look at the study of Bukhari, Sahih Bukhari. I mean the. Uh, within um, you know 50, 60 years of his of his death, there's already people trying to get different riwayat, different narrations of his book to like you know, what's what's the most reliable version. And then every couple hundred years, you have some, like a big figure, you know, uh, Abu Dhar al Harawi, al Yunini, al Qastalani, Allahumma sallallahu Muhammad, al Taba Sultania. I mean, you have this. Uh, Obsession with checking mm. all the different variations in the readings of the of the of the Sahih, and then there's a. I remember I wrote I mentioned this in one of the articles I wrote, um, like um, I think on Medina Institute. But you know uh, these scholars like Al Makari and these scholars of the Maghrib in the 1500s, 1600s, they say things like you know these books, these Shuruh, these hand, these these Maliki Shuruh books, there's they're starting to. Um, some of the stuff is like opinions or marginal notes are starting to get uh, incorporated into the main text. Like some guy is writing some non nonsense on the margin, and that's getting incorporated into, as like a thick opinion or something into the main. And they said now these these texts you can't rely. This book can't rely on. This book you can't rely on. So there there this uh, I mean even like half of the Dhabi, you see these guys. He went. He got the the the. Edition the the the, the 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 manuscript of Tariq Baghdad written in the hand of Khatib Baghdadi in the hand of the author right so they were obsessive I mean yeah. they were obsessive you're 100 percent right about everything you just said but the idea that um, that that's actually uh, something Muslims have always had see yeah. My, sorry okay yeah see but my uh, I was reading your book uh, on Hadith but like at the same time there are these histories with like crazy stuff in them like even Tariq Baghdad and all these other books with like crazy narrations and you know they would collect like these you, that's things. you're coming from a Hanafi perspective right because they don't like that book <laughs> no right? but they but they would yeah but you know what this, this is so this is something that you know I, I agree with you 100% I've written about this and I think this is a big kind of in, internal inconsistency <laughs> in Muslim thought which is 
and if you went to Khatib Baghdadi or any of these guys or, or, or Ibn Manda or Abu Naim al-Isbahani or mm-hmm. Ibn Asakar and you asked them like is this story true they'd be like no it's not true so oh, why is it in your book so they but they allowed those things for insignificant stories yeah. but, like but history stories the color it up yeah. right but, but then you, you start getting like enough of that material yeah. Yeah. and people start losing capacity yeah. to, to really discern truth from falsehood mm. and that's why people like Ibn al-Jawzi, you have the book on your library upstairs, it's like Tablis Iblis, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Or Ibn Hajar, or even an Imam Muslim, right? Why does he write his Sahih? He says, I go around the mosque, I hear people mm. narrating stuff, they know he's not reliable. Yeah. They're Athim wa ghish. They are sinning and cheating people when they narrate this material. Mm. And so there's a, there's a minority opinion which is held by some of the biggest scholars in Islamic history throughout, all the way up until like Al-Albani today, or you know, in the modern period, which is like, no, look, you have a method for sorting out reliable from unreliable material. Observe. Why do you then go and use the unreliable yeah, material? Exactly. And one to of the color reasons, it up. I mean, one of the reasons, like, you know, we, we all do this, right? You know, I tell, we tell a story and we know, it we know it's not true, but yeah. we do this all the time. Or we yeah. tell a version of a story that's a, that's a little bit different than what actually happened, but it mm-hmm. communicates it better. But then there can be less, uh, you know, it can be less um, noble. And we've all, we've all done this thing where, you know, you know, we read like uh, an article or we hear someone says, did you hear so-and-so said this? And then I, I tell Nazmo, so-and-so said this. And who told you this? Oh, I, did you hear him say that? No, I didn't hear him say that. I mean, I, Shad yeah. told me. And then God knows where this stuff came from in the yeah. original. But we all like, and so that uh, we all kind of uh, un- unintentionally spread uh, falsehoods. Yeah. My, my biggest concern with that is, I mean, my experience debating with Christians is, I mean, they will... I mean, it's a very difficult point to defend in a debate because they'll be like, "Oh, look at this outrageous story. It's earlier, therefore it's it's authentic." That's right? not true at all. Uh, exactly. First of all, you know, there's some. I mean, there's some stories in them like Maghazi. Like, for example, yeah, right. this idea that. Um, I mean, this is this is the craziest <laughs> thing. So, oh, well, a couple of things. Like one in in I think it's Maghazi al Waqadi. Yeah. That. Uh, that. Uh, the, the Prophet when they capture Ta'if he orders he says okay, go to this other Kaaba where there's this uh, like Izza or Al-Lat or Al-Izza or Al-Uzza he says go and uh, destroy he tells Khalid ibn Awid go destroy yeah. this he goes he like chops it you know hits it with a sword or something comes back the Prophet's like you know, he didn't destroy it go back he goes up and it comes alive as this woman with a crazy hair and attacks him with a sword. I heard that one. Yeah. So I was like, okay, first of all, <laughs> <laughs> I thought idols, they, they can't help you, they can't hurt you, right? They can't, def- they ca- they can't even defend themselves against a fly. Yeah. You know, this is like all Quranic. So if the, if the idea is like, this has to be true because why would a Muslim invent it? You, you don't think it's true, do you, historian? No, of course it's not true. Idols don't come to life. But it's like somebody made this up and it, supposedly Muslims don't invent this stuff because they believe in idols don't do anything. So most, there's other story in the, the Sira Ibn, Ibn Ishaq. It's the weird, like it's Salman al-Farisi. It only appears in this source. Salman al-Farisi is telling the story of how he became Muslim. He's coming from Persia. He wanders around seeking the true religion. Eventually some guy says, go to this, the desert in Syria. And there's this bushes. There's two bushes. And there's a wise man who lives in the bushes. And every year he goes from one bush to the other bush. And you got to catch him during that time and ask him about the true religion. And he goes, the guy finds a wise man. The wise man runs between one bush and the other, gets him. Where's the true religion? He says, okay, go to Medina. The prophet's coming there. And then the prophet allegedly says to him, do you know who that was? He says, that was Jesus. Oh, wow. So, okay, so ha- who, 
like you know nobody I'm Christians Muslims nobody believes Jesus is living in a bush in like 600 <laughs> AD you know so uh, bush in Syria yeah. so this is you know again this is in the Sirah of Ibn Ishaq and I'll be like yes that story is made up and it has a totally unreliable isnad by the way okay so the point is that um, but people that make up stories for all sorts of weird reasons yeah. but the unreliable isnad is pointed out right he doesn't know Ibn Ishaq doesn't point it out but his peers point it out I mean, his peers, we don't, I mean, his I peers criticize him. I've never seen that story criticized. But How about that, the Khalid bin Walid story? Have you ever seen that gets, criticized? That stuff gets cut out of uh, Ibn, Ibn Ishaq, Sirah by Ibn Hisham. Yeah. Ibn Hisham, that's the stuff that he cuts out, like the satanic mm. verses story and yeah. all this stuff. Which he was cut, from Waqidi. That's in Ibn Ishaq too. Mm. He cuts this stuff out. But I think to your point about discussing this with um, non-Muslims or Christians, I actually have found that to be an area we shine. Because if you look at everything that's core to practicing our religion, mm-hmm. our process around that is, is, is not even close. To say second to none would be yeah. an understatement. Like you look at the Quran and how that's been transmitted down. You yeah. look at like Imam Bukhari's hadith, which has just an amazing process around it. Mm-hmm. It gives us everything we need to practice. A lot of these outside things that are clearly made up it doesn't impact it our doesn't day-to-day touch day practice, practice of and the not religion. And only, not only that, we and do the, just the fact that we have a discussion around it. Here you have Ibn Hisham, the student, already checking the teacher. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and I've seen... original university student. I've, I've, <laughs> I've seen a convert in Australia convert purely based on the process mm. that, that Islam took, yeah. that the Muslims take to, 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 to preserve the, the deen. It's 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 but another it's thing that's really important is exactly what you're saying, which is one of the earliest policies that we can we find in books, like as far back as we have books of hadith, is the statement of Ahmed ibn Hanbal and all these other figures from his time onward, which is uh, hadith that deal with halal haram, hadith that deal with ahkam, we're very strict on. Hadith that deal with manners, the virtues of people, uh, what happened at the beginning of the world, what happened at the end of the world, that stuff, they said, we're lax on this. Because yeah. they, they they said, these are not the core areas. The core areas of religion are ahkam, law, and aqidah, belief, yeah. the nature of God. That they were super strict on. Yeah. But everything else, they were like, mm. you know, and it's kind of ironic because nowadays if you go, yeah, you go out of the street and you say to someone on the street, like, religion. They're going to be like Adam and Eve, religion. They're going to be like apocalypse or yeah, like rapture. Yeah. Right? So the, the things that we think we don't when we talk about religion in America today, we don't talk about like how you get married, how you transact yeah. things, yeah. how you pray. Right? I mean, people yeah. are like, why don't you pray? You know? So like the 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 things that today we think of as being the first thing that come into my mind that are, are religion yeah. are the things that Muslim scholars were the least concerned about in terms mm-hmm. of authenticity. Yeah. And, so uh, I know we hear a lot of stories. Um, of how how strict they were about um, taking hadith from 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 sources, uh, one of them that, that I've heard often is Imam Bukhari. If, you know, if someone was honest in everything that they did, but he saw him kind of lure over an animal with something, but it's just kind of oh lying, yeah, yeah, yeah that he wouldn't take hadith from from this person or transmission from this person. One is that true? Uh, it was it that strict, and two. If it is, or similar stories like that are true, how do we know it's just not folklore? How can we say, look, this is how this is? We, mm. We're sure as Muslims. I mean, I would that say, it was that I would strict. say you don't even need. 
I would say those stories are cute and interesting, but they're kind of irrelevant because you don't even need to, you can see it in the books themselves. So uh, like, I mean, just an example, like Sunan Abu Dawood, he, Abu Dawood has, he's heard a hadith from somebody, but he hasn't, um, he didn't hear it narrated from that guy's book. He wanted the guy to sit and read the book to him instead of just telling him the hadith. So he goes, he finds another person who is that person's student, and he has him read it to him. So the point, he, he says this in his, in his book, like in the course of narrating a hadith. Uh, Bukhari, if you look at his sahih, it's, I mean, it's, it gets to the point of almost absurdity because he, so he'll include multiple, almost always multiple narrations of a hadith. And there will be often no difference between the hadith and even no difference in the asnat, except, for example, one, like, let's say the asnat is like me to Shadi to Saad, right? So it would be like Saad says, I heard Shadi from Jonathan. Another version would say, uh, I heard Saad, Shadi tell me that Jonathan told him. Mm. So he'll, he'll include a version to make sure that at every link in the asnad, mm. in the chain, there's actually specific statement of, the person told me not from because from means like for example according to somebody according yeah. to martin luther king i never met martin luther king right so but the point is <laughs> that that's what an, an means according to or yeah. from so it could mean you met him it could mean you never met the person so that's like and you don't even he doesn't even specify this as his policy but you start to realize it and yeah. you start to write down like you realize that yeah. he's actually making sure that for every chain of transmission there's a uh a li- there's a direct evidence of direct transmission mm. that's awesome See, my, see my, my biggest concern is not with that specific thing because I think that's uncontested that, you know, the Muslim tradition, uh, you know, they've, they've been aware of the corruption of other religions and that, that sort of mindset of, um, of trying to preserve their own religion comes out of that anxiety of, you know, losing that authenticity. But one of the things that I've noticed, at least, is that sometimes the authority can be taken to uh, an extreme where your sheikh or whatever, you know, narrates a story about the beginning of the world that, you know, the world originated on the back of a tortoise or whatever, so, you know, stuff in Ibn Kathir's Bidayo Nihaya. And, you know, people will be like, you know, that must be true. Like, it must, you know, we can't. Because the sheikh is so pious. Yeah, Isn't exactly. that a Hindu uh, belief? I don't know. I don't know where he got that from. But yeah, that's yeah. Hindu. The back of the tortoise, the, and you guy gets on the back of the tortoise and gyrates on the tortoise. <laughs> yeah, and there's a, there's something about a giant bull in in yeah, yeah, yeah. in Ibn Kathir. But well. Ibn Kathir so is not gonna. That's Mithra. That's the Mithra bull. Oh. Yeah. Mithra kills this bull, and out of the bull's blood, all the the sun and the moon uh, and everything are born. Yeah. So hmm. there you go. So Ibn Kathir is just collecting all kinds of pagan. Uh, See, but like but regular he, I'm people, sure he's not te- passing that off as like truth. No, but but the thing is, is he that just citing it. There's a lot of people. I like. Just I'm like from Ibn Kathir has a yeah. lot of Israelis. Yeah. Right? Okay. So, no, yeah. but Ibn Kathir, like he himself, as Doctor uh, Doctor Brown said, would never accept this is like he's just this is just, just history, saying. Right? Yeah. Some people but, say, but but Qila. people like I'm from I'm from Bangladesh, yeah. and they yeah. have they have like a very. Uh, Qila means it was said, and yeah, it was yeah. like just if if you hear a story that's interesting, I don't want you to really believe it, yeah. but let's just say it. Let's let's just say it. You say Qila. It was said. Yeah. Some people said. Yeah. But the thing is that in the public sphere, especially in certain Muslim countries, um, uh, like especially in Bangladesh too, like uh, I'm from Bangladesh, like people will just say the most outrageous things and they'll just believe it because, you know, my sheikh said so. And yeah. So that's, a, that's the branches of Gufism. Okay, but, yeah, but, 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 but no, you know, it's, it's funny because when, when I was writing the Misquoting Muhammad book, 
Uh, I'm sorry, Ahmed. I keep cutting you off. No. Okay, <laughs> I, I mean, I'll I'll be quiet That's after okay. this. But the you know the um, uh, like I was writing the book and I was like, you know, I, I kind of want to say that Muslims are more prone to conspiracy theories than Americans. <laughs> Then I was like, you know what? I started thinking about like the whole like Obama's a Muslim stuff, and I, and now for God, there's this like uh, Q. What is this? Uh, yeah, QAnon. QAnon or whatever. Like, you know, I'm like, wait a second, that's not true. Like, <laughs> we, we have our own utter nonsense Jones, stuff too. You know what I mean? Like, we have the I'm only sorry. the the people who uh, can have conspiracy stories more than anyone else are people who lost, right? So we as a civilization lost. So we need to explain away that everything was from the Yahud. Everything was are from the that that's protocols. Why, you know, regular mainstream Democrats are all believe that everything is a Russian bot. Now, now they're <laughs> doing they lost the that. election. Well, and it was it was the uh, Republicans first with Obama. He's a Muslim, etc. And now it's the Democrats and all they're obsessed with is the Russians. Right. Because they can't believe they actually legitimately lost. Yeah. Right. And Muslims for the last few you know, since uh, I guess the latest version of it was Israel and the Yahud. Before that, I don't know what it was, something else. And then people right? who couldn't get on that moon ride are like, it's never happened. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, and then it's like, you know, Neil Armstrong became Muslim. Because <laughs> he heard the Adan in space. Yeah. I mean, the 90s were rough for Muslims. Yeah. I, I, believe that. I believe that for a long yeah. period of time. Yeah. And then I actually looked it up and I'm just like, yeah. where's my common sense? Okay, right, now so question for you. You have something? No, no, I was gonna, we we're going to switch to the next. Okay, story, so before we get to slavery now, tell us, uh, where'd you grow up? Um... I have another question. Interview. Sorry, we'll I, have interview. An, I have another question before. Yeah. But you, but you just like just cut this out. Yeah. Is there any coffee around here, man?